0: I once was lost. Threshold 4. Seeking after God. I wanted something to happen for me spiritually, but I was waiting for someone to come and show me. Steve was not a Christian, but over time, Steve observed the life of his Christian friend David from a distance. Steve grew up in urban East Los Angeles. He had friends in gangs. Growing up in East LA, you survived by being tough, looking hard. Steve worked out all the time. He projected an image of a tough guy. After a few months, David surprised Steve with an invitation to an event called Jesus and the Homeless. Steve was intrigued, since he didn't know that Jesus had anything to say about the homeless. When he got there, he was shocked to see Christians sleeping in large cardboard boxes, just as the homeless do. He admired their passion for the poor and oppressed, and he saw that Jesus' words made a real difference in their lifestyle. They didn't fit his stereotype of Christians. Their obedience to Jesus' words sparked his curiosity. Another Christian friend invited him to look at the life of Jesus for himself. Since he could see that Jesus had made such a dramatic impact in their lives, it made sense that he could learn something from Jesus. He acted on his curiosity. After about 10 weeks of looking together at passages from the Gospels, Steve's Christian friends invited him to join them on a four-day service trip to Mexico, where they would work together building a house for an extremely poor family. Because of the last 10 weeks of looking at the Gospels, Steve knew that Jesus transformed lives. Life transformation became an acceptable concept to Steve, and he even embraced the idea that he himself needed to grow and change. Then came the trip to Mexico. Each day, the team would work on the house, and at night, there was a speaker, Matt, who talked about Jesus and his impact on our lives. One evening, Matt invited those who wanted to become followers of Jesus to stand and make a commitment. Steve took a risk and stood. Since Matt knew that follow-up was essential, he had personal conversations with each person who stood. He asked Steve what he was feeling and why he stood during the invitation into the kingdom. Steve answered, Jesus is cool, you know. I just want to be a better person and do good things. As they spoke further, Matt sensed that Steve had just become a seeker, not a follower of Jesus. A real commitment had been made, but not the one that Matt had at first assumed. So Matt began to treat Steve like a seeker, someone who had decided to seek out God more purposely and seriously. Back on campus, he invited him to everything that the Christian community did together, scripture study, prayer, worship, and social events, in order to help Steve come to some more conclusions. A Seeker on a Quest Those who have recently traveled the path to faith tell us that after trusting a Christian, becoming curious about Jesus, and finally being open to change in their life, they still weren't necessarily wanting to come to conclusions. For each of them, there was another shift, a fourth threshold to come. They needed to lean into the journey they were on and decide to purposely seek final answers, a resolution. They needed to become seekers. Having a friend become a seeker is a delightful part of the journey to faith in Jesus. It is fun and dynamic. We may not notice a big change in their behavior when they switch from just being open to change to actually being a seeker, but to them the internal shift is rather dramatic. The choice to become a seeker is when the penny drops. I have some questions and I need answers too. I need to make a decision about Jesus. There's a subtle but important difference between someone who is sort of meandering toward God and someone who is purposely seeking out and exploring Jesus. When someone is truly seeking, there is an urgency and purpose to their searching. They feel almost as if it is a quest they are on and they lean into it with a rather determined posture. Even they feel that the time is right. They want answers to their questions. They want to come to conclusions so they live and ask questions and pray and talk with others to help them resolve the issue. This is part of how you can tell the difference between a phantom seeker and a true spiritual seeker. Phantom seekers do lots of the same things that seekers do. They ask questions, discuss issues, even attend a Bible study or event. But their posture lacks urgency. They have not yet set their mind to walking on a journey toward God, as much as they are open to discussing questions with others. They may be using questions as a way to deflect conversation from something deeper and perhaps more vulnerable for them. True seekers are on a quest. They want to connect dots and come to conclusions. Their questions aren't dodging techniques or casual inquiries. They are generally looking for some concrete answers. We have seen three major trends among seekers that distinguish them from phantom seekers or others who may appear on the surface to be seeking. Number 1. Seekers seek Jesus, not just God. There's a difference between merely being spiritually curious, wanting to connect with the divine, and wanting to know Jesus. Seekers want to know specifically if Jesus can be trusted. Can he really address my aches of loneliness? Is it Jesus who can bring power and hope into my life? Seekers have a clear object of intrigue and their spiritual curiosity. It isn't just about a smorgasbord of religions. They want to know more about this carpenter from Nazareth and how he might be relevant to their life. Number two. Seekers count the cost. Seekers have been around Jesus, his word, and the Christian community enough to know that there are implications to becoming a believer. It isn't just about fire insurance, and it's not just about some mental assent to doctrine for absolution. Jesus has some specific advice about how to live, and they feel challenged to believe that this advice is really going to be for their good. If I become a follower of Jesus, I may need to break up with my boyfriend. We're sleeping together. Do I really want to do that? Seekers make the implications personal. Jesus doesn't just have general wisdom for a faceless humanity. He has things to say to me. Number 3. Seekers spend time with Christians Because of the trust that has been built with Christians in the community, it is quite normal for seekers to spend a great deal of time with them. They feel included in social and spiritual activities, and on their own initiative, they feel comfortable attending Bible studies and church services. They may not feel like they totally fit in or understand everything that is going on, but they have decided that being uncomfortable at some level is worth it. While this fourth threshold is subtle and sometimes is crossed pretty quickly, we have found that it is indeed a unique threshold and that people often need help becoming a true seeker. Lostness, on the far side of this threshold, being open to change but not seeking, does not feel like lostness. It feels like seeking to them. Those who are now finally open think that their passive posture of receptivity is actually seeking. They are open to the universe and they often think that is a goal. Openness means arriving. It is often very helpful to just explicitly challenge them to become a seeker. Tell them that committing oneself to seeking after God is an important decision to make, though it is different from actually deciding to follow Jesus. We have found that folks at this threshold often need to be challenged, otherwise they may stagnate in their path to faith. In the transition from openness to seeking, a non-Christian decides that they need to make up their mind about becoming a follower of Jesus. So how do you help someone make this subtle shift? How do you help someone go from casually and occasionally asking questions to really being on a quest for answers and for connecting the dots? Live out the kingdom of God in front of them. While some folks do become seekers quite naturally and quickly, others need to see the kingdom lived out in front of them. For many, a view of the kingdom lived out in four dimensions is what catalyzes their posture as a seeker. It helps them seek Jesus, not just God. It helps them count the cost. It helps them soak in Christian community. In short, it helps them become a seeker. But it isn't just the good stuff that we need to put on display. We need to also open up our struggles and convictions and messy reconciliation. Here are four tangible ways you could start living out the kingdom in front of a friend who may need help becoming a seeker rather than a meanderer. number 1. Show them how to build their lives on Jesus' words. Not only did David and another Christian, Serene, invite Steve to study the Gospels with them, but they studied them with an eye toward how Jesus' words were practical and affected people's lives. Serene studied the House on the Rock passage, Matthew 7, with Steve, helping him see how hearing and doing the words of Jesus makes for a solid life. As God speaks to you through your devotions or through a sermon at church, Tell your seeker friends how God is challenging or leading you. As you open up your experience, they will come to believe in a God who speaks today. They will expect to build their lives on Jesus' expert advice on practical matters. Number 2. Open up your prayer life to them. It's not only okay to allow our non-Christian friends to see our public displays of affection with God. It's actually quite helpful. Inviting folks into that kind of conversation makes lots more sense when they have seen what praying is like. Various non-Christian friends have come to our prayer meetings and just sit there, eyes wide open, watching us pray. It is a little unnerving, but it is beautiful to let them learn to talk to God by watching us interact with Jesus directly. Doug How do you pray? Can I watch? I was caught off guard by the question. I believed in opening up my life of faith to my non-Christian friends, but this was a little intimidating. My friend had recently become open and he wanted to experience firsthand how I talked to God and interacted with him daily. So I agreed to have a quiet time in front of him, praying outwardly what I would normally pray inwardly. Sometimes I pray through the Lord's Prayer, phrase by phrase. That day, I opened my heart and soul and let my friend experience my intimacy with our Heavenly Father. Serene and Steve had been studying scripture and eating burgers at a local in-and-out restaurant, and Serene prayed at the end of their lunch. She invited Steve to as well, saying, why don't you try praying? Steve hesitated, but as they left, Serene encouraged him. Just try talking to God and ask him what you need. So walking through the in and out parking lot, Steve tried praying for the first time. Talking with God and asking him questions is a great thing for those learning how to seek. Number 3. Provide satisfying answers to their initial questions If you want to encourage your friends to fully give themselves over to seeking, it's helpful to answer their questions with answers that are actually helpful, thereby encouraging more seeking. Some non-Christians find abstract, theoretical, propositional answers to be very helpful. We find that international students from mainland China who are atheists really need this type of modern reasoning and persuasion. But often our friends have told us that these classical apologetic answers weren't satisfying for them. They wanted answers that were personal, real, and grounded in a real-life experience. If God is so good, why is there suffering in the world? This is an abstract question. But when your friends ask it, they are likely not looking primarily for a philosophically satisfying answer. They may have a hidden personal tragedy in their own family, or they may not. But either way, they secretly yearn to know if you are for real and if your faith makes a real difference in tough situations. So you could quote C.S. Lewis, one of our favorite authors, or you could use yourself as a case study of the issue at hand. In that moment, God's work in your personal life is probably the most satisfying answer you can offer them. Talk about suffering in your own life and how you have seen God's goodness in the midst of that. Answer the question with your life of faith, not with memorized cliches. By opening yourself and your honest struggles to your friend, you show them the gospel at work. You answer their spoken and unspoken questions, and when you do all that, it's easy to ask them how they respond. Honesty on your part catalyzes honesty on their part. We have created a five-step framework for doing apologetics, answering questions these days. We suggest that instead of giving knee-jerk, somewhat abstract answers, you take the conversation up a level, all the way up to the attic. Affirm. When people pose questions about faith and God, Be wildly enthusiastic that they are asking questions, even if you don't like the particular question they are asking. Gush over the fact that they are asking questions. This blesses their curiosity. Translate. Think about what you would want to say in abstract terms and then bring that same point down into your own life. Don't quote your pastor don't talk about what you read in a book. Do the hard work of thinking about that topic in relation to your own journey. Translating is not easy, but it is a great act of love to open your soul for your friend to see transparent. Let your answer be a confessional. Show your friend your struggles. Don't be smug with all the right answers. Let them know you are still a work in progress. Insert yourself as a case study. Don't all religions point to the same God? Instead of answering that abstractly, insert yourself into the question. Let's look at someone like me as a Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, or follower of Jesus. Using your struggles, look at what each religion says to you and your personal struggles. By personalizing the questions to yourself, you transform the abstract to the real. Challenge After answering a question, always bring it back to your friend. What about you? What are you looking for? Are you a mixed bag like me? Where do you need the touch of a living God? We have found applying Attic to be a labor of love. It is like learning a new language. It will come over time with practice. Be patient with yourself. But set your mind to growing in this over time. Your work to provide satisfying answers early on may be just what it takes for your friend to become a seeker. Number four, model seeking. One of the best ways we can encourage seeking in our friends is to model seeking in our own lives. We're not suggesting that believers pretend that they aren't Christians and act as if they were seekers. We're saying that every believer as they follow Jesus gets to model exactly what we're talking about here, actively seeking after Jesus. Seeking after Jesus is at the core of who we are as believers. And it can be very helpful to do that seeking in front of our friends. Don Remember Matthew from the chapter on Threshold 2? When Matthew came back from his summer internship, he had read all four Gospels and was really, really liking Jesus. But as we continued to meet together, I realized that Matthew's questions needed some meaty answers, so I asked him to do a gig with me. The idea seemed a bit odd to him. He had already read all four Gospels, but he agreed and so the next time we got together, I brought along a passage, John 1, printed out on a paper, a copy for him and a copy for me. After chit-chatting for a while, I brought the sheets out. I put some pens on the table between us and told him that I like to use highlighters and pens to underline words, write questions, etc., write on the scripture text itself. This seemed interesting to him, so he agreed to take five minutes on his own to read, mark, and write down questions. We both started reading and writing. But then Matthew stopped and looked at me, obviously puzzled. What are you doing? He asked. What do you mean? I really didn't know what he meant. What are you reading it for? I thought you knew all this stuff. There we were at an incredible learning moment. I told him how much I love going to scripture with my thoughts and feelings and questions. I told him what it is like for me to find the voice of Jesus in there. I told him how much I love doing that. Matthew looked at me, nodded thoughtfully, and it seemed to me, went back to his writing and reading with even more vigor and purpose than before. Much more could be said about modeling seeking, but we do want to mention testimonies. There's nothing quite like having believers, especially brand new ones, tell the story of their journey to faith. Sharing our testimonies in this way accomplishes many, many things. Among them, modeling what it looked like for us to begin seeking God with vigor. This kind of modeling is precious and valuable and celebrates the posture of seeking after God. In the end, however, you can live out the kingdom in front of your friends. Showing them how to build a life on Jesus' words, opening your prayer life, providing satisfying answers or modeling seeking, helps them move from meandering to seeking. Create safe places for people to seek. If you want to help people become true seekers, then we should create some safe places for them to do it. When they have the freedom to be honest without fear of being judged or coerced into believing something, They can be vulnerable and allow their internal questions to come out. Seeker events can be a very serving tool for our friends who are at this specific threshold because it allows space for them to assume the seeking posture. Now, creating a safe environment may sound easy. We used to think it would be easy. But after some failures, we have learned some important lessons about creating places for seekers to feel safe. Places we like to think of as frontage roads. When Doug was learning to drive during high school, he discovered a way to check out the freeway without driving on it. A few blocks from his house, there was a frontage road that went parallel to the freeway. He would drive the frontage road at 30 miles per hour and, by looking through the chain-link fence over the freeway, get a very good sense of the freeway traffic. Many seekers are not yet ready to join the speedy freeway of our churches and communities. We are a little too intense for them, but they would love some parallel opportunities to check us out and check out Jesus at half-speed so they could really ask all their questions. Whether a seeker event is a weekly gig, a weekend retreat, or a special service designed for large crowds, all of which we use and recommend, we've learned a few important questions to ask before holding such an event. These questions arose from hearing from our friends about what makes such events truly safe. Number 1. Is this event designed with real seekers in mind? One of the interesting things our friends have taught us is that places that seem comfortable to us are often uncomfortable to them. Places that seem natural to us can be confusing and foreign to them. Our language rolls right off our tongues but makes them feel like outsiders, confused and unsafe. So we need to be purposeful and thoughtful about the type of seeker's events we create. We always need to start with our seeker friends and their feelings in mind rather than starting with what makes us feel safe or comfortable. Before moving on from this question, we want to make an important distinction since we are using words like seeker and event. Many events are referred to as seeker events, but aren't really for seekers as defined in the Five Threshold. Sometimes, seeker can be taken to mean any non-Christian, and therefore any event held for non-Christians is called a seeker event. The reality is that non-Christians can be at very different places, and events for them should be fine-tuned to their needs. For example, the Edge was designed for people who are skeptics, adverse to religion and God. It may not even be curious about spiritual things. It was not, as we are considering the Five Thresholds, an event primarily geared toward seekers. It was geared toward engaging folks at Thresholds 1 and 2, with the goal of helping them grow through Threshold 3. Our reasoning for this was rather straightforward. There were very few true seekers at UCLA, so we created an event to reach the core of the campus. In Denver, we hold an event called Smelly Left Sandal a place for people to come and take a whiff of Jesus. It is designed for people stuck at Threshold 2 and is therefore not a secret event at all. We're not trying to answer final questions. We're trying to arouse initial curiosity. Different events for different purposes. All of this is just to say, if you are discussing holding a secret event with others, make sure you clarify which threshold you are actually trying to help people step through before planning the event. Make sure you are designing the event for the people you are inviting. Number two, are the expectations clear? Through trial and error, we found that being vague or not talking explicitly about rules and expectations creates confusion and less safety at secret events. People are left wondering how to participate, and their discomfort reduces transparency. The vagueness, though perhaps arising from a loving desire to not pressure people, actually may force people to guard themselves, since they don't know what might be coming or what might be asked of them later on. Doug, a while ago, I was invited to lead a series of gigs with various curious, open, and seeking friends who were connected with our Christian group through different friendships. Sixteen folks showed up for the first gig to study the Gospel of Mark together. Before beginning the actual study, we began by putting a list of our five rules up on the wall. Yeah, five rules. Here's what they were. One, you must grow. This is not an academic exercise, but rather we want to be transformed. Number two. You must be curious and ask questions. We will go around in a circle to hear everyone's questions. Number three, you have to be honest about what is going on inside. You have to share. Number four, you have to take risks and try new things. Number five, you have to listen to others in the group. No spacing out. Listening and learning is hard work. To our surprise, the members loved our rules. One woman later joked with us that she had immediately assumed our rules would be more typical. No swearing, no fighting, no knives, etc. Having clear expectations relieved their unspoken worry, not knowing what would be asked of them or when. And our specific rules also moved them toward seeking. By agreeing to our rules, they were agreeing to look for God and open their souls. Throughout our times together, we regularly invoked one rule or another. Some of our Christian friends cringe at the idea of communicating group norms. They fear this sounds authoritarian and inauthentic and that non-Christians will run away. Just the opposite is the case. It is surprisingly powerful and important to set clear expectations for people, especially people at this threshold. Of course it is important to be clear about these expectations without being preachy and pushy, but setting explicit expectations early on actually creates clarity and safety for folks and allows the community to be held accountable to grow and to risk. We also learn that in order for it to be a safe place, we ourselves would have to abide by the same rules. Number three, is scripture central to what we've planned? Ultimately, scripture is where the answers are, which means people who are wanting to find answers to their questions should have scripture placed in their hands. While someone is trying to cross the threshold one or two, it may be too much to ask them to look at scripture itself, maybe. But at this threshold, folks don't need to know what you think about Jesus near as much as they need to hear what the gospel says about Jesus. Unfortunately, we've found that seekers are often given talks and explanations instead of time to explore the Gospels for themselves. When we explore Scripture with seekers, we try to help them read it as actively as possible. With Matthew, Don used a manuscript study method of studying Scripture, which gets folks actively engaging the words and paragraphs themselves. It's often better to walk clear through one Gospel to let it tell the whole story than to seek out contextless verses that address a seeker's specific questions. We want people to chew on chunks of scripture, not just casually licking small pieces of it. Steve, our friend from the beginning of the chapter, had always assumed that Christianity was a corporate, group-think kind of reality, like the Borg from Star Trek. This misperception colored how Steve viewed Christianity and Jesus. He was interested in Jesus, but this one question continued to pester him. But one day, he was studying the parable of the Ten Bridesmaids, Matthew 25, And as he studied Jesus' words, Steve saw that Jesus wants a unique connection to each person. It's not groupthink he's interested in, but relating personally and individually to each one. It was by handling Scripture that Steve got this. Doug As the 16 open-hearted non-believers started studying Mark with me, we weren't hearing lectures or cliches about the Christian faith. We were entering together into the world depicted by Mark. Mark became our guide, our teacher, and our friend. We learned to love his picture of Jesus, his terse writing style, and his sense of humor. Mark charted the course of this group of open people to become seekers. In chapter 1, Mark showed us fishermen being utterly transformed by Jesus. We were intrigued by Jesus' impact on them. What is it about Jesus that rocks people's worlds? In chapter 2, he redefined faith. We asked, how does your definition of faith differ from Mark's? One person confessed, faith is knowing that something is false, but believing in it anyway. Mark challenged this definition, showing us a picture of faith that rips off roots. Faith is determination to get to Jesus. False notions about faith are a major barrier to real faith, and Mark was skillfully dismantling these blocks. By chapter 4, Mark was pressing us to examine our life choices and priorities. The parable of the Sawyer became a mirror to us of the things we don't like in our lives. And by the time Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, we similarly were ready to take the risk of testifying to what we were seeing of God in our little community. Scripture is used by the Holy Spirit to speak to people. Not only does it help people face their honest questions, but it provides answers. Whenever we hold an event, big or small, for people at this threshold, we are careful to ask ourselves how central the study of Scripture is. Number 4. Are we guiding seekers or shielding them? Guiding seekers is a form of hospitality. We come alongside our friends as they experience an event and help translate for them what is going on. A guide isn't a know-it-all. A guide helps interpret their experience. This is key for an event to remain safe for our friends. We explain what a gospel is. We tell them why someone is going to pray during the event. We explain why Christians sing songs. Seeker guiding is like being a guide at a museum, showing people different rooms and explaining what they are seeing in each room. Shielding seekers is more like changing the content of the museum to be something wholly familiar with the visitors. We take out the explicitly Christian exhibits and fill the museum with stuff they are already used to. This is the tension between serving folks in Threshold 2 and 3 and guiding seekers. At the edge, page 67, we removed worship and prayer to try and help our friends explore faith in the least threatening context possible. But once our friends become seekers, we need to make a switch. To shield seekers from prayer, worship, and mission is to potentially misrepresent the life of faith. At my, Doug's Church, we changed how we introduce worship at our Sunday evening fusion service, geared to those in college through those in their 30s. Each week begins with the interpretation. Worship is when Jesus says, come and see, and we respond by coming and seeing who Jesus is and what he has for us. This clarity has helped us in two ways. It has helped us make worship accessible to our non-Christian friends, and it has shaken the rest of us out of our religious routine, reminding us to actually seek God as we sing. Being seeker guiding has made us deeper disciples. We used to shield seekers from mission. We were afraid of scaring them away by asking them to commit or get involved. Today, many of us are seeing the wisdom of inviting non-Christians to engage in kingdom activities, especially ones focused on mercy and justice. We try to create seeker tracks for all of our service projects and week-long missions. We also intentionally articulate the gospel to them during these service projects, being explicit about why we serve. Our acts of service are not self-explanatory. Left to themselves, seekers will come up with their own random explanations, so we need to connect the dots for them. One tragic upshot with the rise of the seeker-sensitive movement in the 1990s was a grievous polarization between those who wanted depth and those doing seeker-sensitive. In many circles, real Christian community and growth and discipleship were supposedly found by isolating your small group and avoiding non-Christians. The thought was that if you welcomed outsiders, you would have to cater to these seekers by watering down your content. It is our great joy to say that you can have both depth and a welcoming environment for outsiders. Let us embrace the call to courageous leadership to forge communities that do both at the same time. Committing to a Quest By living out the kingdom in front of our friends and inviting them into safe places where they can stretch their seeking muscles, we can help demystify the seeking process and help them enter the seeking posture. If the Spirit of God works in the concrete circumstances of someone's life and in the profound depths of their soul, they can cross Threshold 4, moving from meandering towards Jesus to seeking some final conclusions. And when someone is seeking, only God knows where it might lead. After coming back from Mexico, Steve went to worship services for the next six weeks. He really enjoyed the new friends and the new experiences he was having. He was safe to seek, and he did. On the sixth week, the topic of the worship service was healing from past pain. Steve came forward to receive prayer from the prayer team during the service. Matt was again the one who prayed for him. As they prayed, Matt got a sense, perhaps a mixture of intuition and a nudging from the spirit, that it was time to invite Steve into the kingdom again. He asked a few of Steve's friends to join them, and Matt explained how Jesus invites people into his kingdom and that you have to make a decision to follow Jesus by trusting him with your whole life and joyfully becoming his disciple. Steve had seen enough. He gladly accepted the invitation and committed his life to Jesus that night. After they finished praying, Matt asked Steve to share what just happened with the people who were lingering nearby after the service. Steve bore witness of God's work in his life the group exploded in celebration for their new brother in Christ. Later, Steve confided in Matt that he was genuinely relieved that Matt had invited him into the kingdom, because his journey had been just about up. Earlier that same day, Steve had told himself, I have been exploring Jesus for many weeks, and even though I like these Christians, I am still different. I don't belong. So today is my last day with them. If something doesn't change, I'm not coming to any more events in the future. He had been an earnest seeker of Jesus for many weeks. But seeking takes energy and focus. His seeking had run its course. Thank God that Matt took a risk and did not take the seeker for granted.